0: Would you join with me in prayer dear lord i thank you so much thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together thank you for the opportunity to come together as family to lift up your name in song and prayer to lift up your word so i pray lord that you fill us with your holy spirit open our hearts to you even as we open your word to our hearts be glorified in jesus name amen the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the various trials that Jesus faced in those last few hours before he faced the cross. I want to back up a week to that Palm Sunday, to that Sunday where Jesus rode into town. And part of it you'll go, yeah, of course you were, it's Palm Sunday. Um, Yes, but there's also a very subtle trial that Jesus faced on that Palm Sunday that I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of before we look at how he faced the trials on Friday. I don't mind stopping for a second and backing up and saying think about the frame the context of this so do me a favor open up your bibles to mark chapter 11 and while you're doing that i'm going to back up i'm going to i'm going to put this first palm sunday into a context um in mark chapter 8 verse 33 jesus called this crowd to him with his disciples and said if anyone should come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and and We as Christians today understand what that means, right? But at the time of his listeners, that would have been bizarre because he doesn't explain that. What he essentially says is, I want you to take up an electric chair. I want you to take a noose and put it around your own neck. Would they have understood that? I want you to take a noose and put it around your neck. Deny yourself. Remind yourself that this world is going to hang you, is going to lynch you. Okay, let me put it this way. If we did that today, if we encouraged people to talk about nooses, if we put a noose in front of our church, if we made little gold nooses and wore them, could that be potentially offensive to some people as to the the particular associations that might be made? Would that be something where people might go, what exactly are you trying to get at? What exactly are you trying to say? Would it? potentially be confusing, potentially be offensive. It I mean it obviously totally makes sense to us as Christians today when we see a cross and when we're told to take up our cross, but to them it would have been offensive. Jesus continued, "For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul?" What What can a man give in exchange for his soul how important is it to make sure that your heart is right with the lord to make sure that you're in right relationship with god how how crucial is that not just in the stuff that you do not just in how you look but that your heart is right that you're in right relationship how how big is that you can check every churchy box there is i go to church on sunday i put money in the offering plate i pray i read my bible you can, you can get every, every gift, every toy you ever asked Santa Claus for. You can fulfill every fantasy, both grand and deviant, that you could possibly want in life. You could do everything. You could be Solomon. When you get to the end of the day, at the end of your life, when your body's in the ground, what does any of that matter? Isn't that the whole point of Ecclesiastes when we were going through it? The core is Do you have a relationship with God? Are you saved from your sins? Have have your sins been paid for by his blood? Are you secure that you know where you're going to be after you die? Do you know that and you're absolutely certain of it? Would you rather feel like you've got everything that you want today or know that you've got everything for eternity? Those are the core things. Jesus keeps preaching on it. And yet even the people who lived with him didn't get it. Right after that, soon after that, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves as to who was the the best one, who gets the best stuff. Completely ignoring what he said. Because the scariest thing about the whole we need to check our hearts to make sure that our hearts are right, I guess the two scariest things. Number one, that we don't think to do that unless we consciously think to do that. And number two, we tend to only see what we're already emotionally prepared to see. So we go, yeah, I'm fine. Anyway, who gets the best seats? It's not about that. It's about giving up those kinds of things to honor God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did that the best than anybody. I do it better than Randy, so I get the best seats, right? He's like, stop, think. In fact, the very next chapter he says, guys, guys, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how are you going to make it salty again? How do you resalt salt If it ends up just being salty gypsum that's thrown along the road, once it stops tasting salty, all you're left with is the gypsum. How do you make that salty again? You Don't. So make sure that you actually are inside the thing that you want to taste like, the thing that you want to look like. The easiest way to make sure that you taste that way and look that way is to be that. The easiest way to taste like salt is to be salt yes we can do all sorts of interesting things with chemicals these days to make other things taste salty but the easiest way to taste like salt is to be salt the easiest way to taste like a banana is to be a banana be a banana just be the banana just stop and think about where your heart is like with the lord today. just you don't know how many more heartbeats you get before you have to face that question. And I want you to absolutely know. Jesus says it's so crucial for you to know. It's far more important than anything else. It's in this same chapter that Jesus is like, guys, I know that life is not lasting forever in this place because the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus talking about himself, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They're going to kill him, and after three days he's going to rise. You can't be more specific than that, right? Actually, you can You can. In the very next chapter, he's even more specific. In the next chapter, he talks about a rich young ruler that comes in and and tries to ask Jesus what he should do. and and he, He wants to be righteous, and he probably is a decent guy. But when Jesus scratched the surface and got down to the core of what this guy really needed to do and to be, the guy couldn't do it. He looked like one thing, but underneath that, he wasn't what he should be. And Jesus was trying to explain that to the disciples, trying to explain that all the power and prestige and position don't mean anything. In fact, sometimes they can be a detriment because you get lost in your own blessings and you forget to bless God and you forget that they are blessings, not your things. Only to have two of his disciples, his cousins, James and John, come up and go, so can we have the best seats? It's like I literally just, I just got finished talking about this. We just, rich young ruler, did you not track with any of that? And it's in this context, talking to them, that Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, that he, he took the, all the disciples aside and said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're going to condemn him to death, and they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles We're going to mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and then three days later he's going to rise. In fact, Matthew's Gospel clarifies that when he says they're going to kill him, he's like, through crucifixion. So apparently you can't even be more specific, right? Guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Chief priests are going to turn me over to the Romans. Romans are going to mock me, spit on me. They're going to crucify me, and then three days later I'm going to come back to life. That's pretty specific, isn't it? That's pretty specific. So as they approach Jerusalem, we're told in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I, I've already faced this trial. I know what's coming up. And if you're paying attention at all, you'll understand I'm talking about wearing a noose around my neck and that I know I've got a noose around my neck. That whole sermon illustration should be very real to you. So as they're coming and they're approaching Jerusalem, the disciples are afraid, right? They keep saying, we're afraid that, that, that people are going to kill you. And Jesus, yes, because I said that they will. So like, maybe we shouldn't go. And he's like, no, I'm telling you, I'm not telling you what might happen if we want. I'm telling you what will happen when we go. I'm like, Yeah, so maybe we shouldn't. All except one. Which one? Thomas. Faithful Thomas. I don't know, he might look like a doubter to some of you. He doesn't look like a doubter to me. Scratch the surface and you see faith. He's the only one that went, okay, my Lord, my God. He didn't ask any questions that any of the other disciples asked. So so of all the disciples, John tells us that when everybody else said, we shouldn't do it, and Jesus said, I got to go, Thomas said to the rest of them, well, let us go also, that we can die with him. I love my man, Thomas, faithful Thomas. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany, where Jesus had been baptized uh, three years earlier, and John had been baptizing, and where Mary and, and Martha and Lazarus, in fact, John tells us this is right after Lazarus had been raised from the dead. They came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And perhaps I should stop here because they're giving us all sorts of details that sometimes might be lost on us as modern readers because we're just not familiar with the terrain. So let me let me make this go. If it could go... To the, there you go. So, Jerusalem here, and, and, and is is right near the Mount of Olives. It's right. It's got the Kidron Valley to the to the right of it, to the east of it. And if we look at the map, you'll remind yourselves that Jerusalem is a walled city, right? If you've been coming to the Ezra and Nehemiah Sunday school class, you're all over that. You're like, oh, I know all about the walled city of Jerusalem. Yep. So, personally, I think it would have made really good sense. If Jesus had come to Jerusalem... I got it now. If Jesus had come to Jerusalem and gone to the sheep gate, that's at the very top, the gate where they brought in the sheep and the rams and and the goats and the bulls for sacrifice on account of Jesus was the lamb coming to Jerusalem to be sacrificed, right? I think God missed an opportunity there. He wasn't really... So the sheep gate would have made a lot more sense. It would have been great... But odds are, given the fact that Jesus was coming from Jericho through Bethany and then through Bethpage, odds are, as he's doing that, uh, he would have come down through the East Gate, which is the f- gate that faces east. They call it the East Gate. And he's still right next to the temple complex, so it's still a good place to go. I get it. It's right where the mountain road comes. I got it. It's, it's good. And it would have gone right past the Mount of Olives where he was very familiar. He had preached before. Remember, he's preached at the Mount of Olives. Goes past where he knows his friends are. In fact, he also would have gone right past the Garden of Gethsemane as he went past. And I wonder if he thought about where he'd be in a week. But I wish he'd gone through the sheep game. Though there are some interesting things about the East Gate. It is interesting that in 1540, give or take a couple years, so right in the middle of the Reformation going on in Europe, Suleiman the Magnificent, this Muslim leader who owned Jerusalem, came along and said, nope, we are going to shut the East Gate. As we repair the walls of Jerusalem, we are going to close it forever. We're going to fill it in. Under no circumstances can you ever use the East Gate ever again, because he'd heard about Ezekiel. Ezekiel had talked about the east gate, and Suleiman had heard about what Ezekiel said. In Ezekiel 43, in a vision, the prophet was shown the future and was told, Ezekiel 43, he he was shown this gate facing east, and he said, "'I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east, "'and his voice was like the roar of rushing waters, "'and the land was radiant with his glory.'" He says, I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. And then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, the glory of Yahweh. Ezekiel was told 2,000 years before Suleiman, 600 years before Jesus was ever born, Ezekiel was told that the coming Messiah, the glory of the Lord, would be coming through the east gate. Maybe it's actually not a lost opportunity because maybe God knew what he was doing. But the glory of the Lord was coming through the East Gate. And so he ordered the East Gate closed. He said, no, I want to prevent that. This Jewish Messiah is not coming. In fact, he took that a step further, Suleiman. He planted a cemetery right outside the East Gate. Like, ain't nobody coming through the cemetery to go through the East Gate. I'm, I'm deconsecrating it. I'm shutting it forever. Which is interesting because he'd apparently heard of Ezekiel 43 but hadn't heard of Ezekiel 44. Because in Ezekiel 44, the prophet was again shown the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and this time it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be open. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel, Has entered through it. So I love it that Suleiman says, I want to prevent this prophecy of the coming Jewish Messiah. And so fulfilled the prophecy of the coming Jewish Messiah. God's cool. He knows what he's doing better than I do. He knows what he's doing better than you do, right? Absolutely, you say that in a pew. But but yes, God knows what he's doing. And he's like, I don't want people coming through this again. I, I, I want this to be something that, it isn't just, isn't just something that people trounce through. I want it to be something where we remember that's where the glory of Yahweh came into Israel, came into Jerusalem, came into the temple. And I love how Suleiman actually fulfills prophecy just like, like Pilate, out of sarcasm, out of fear, out of frustration, out of dislike for Caiaphas. Kept calling Jesus King of the Jews, right? Sarcastically called him King of the Jews. Obnoxiously put a crown on his head and a robe on his shoulders. Obnoxiously kept publicly declaring him King of the Jews. Brought him up to an elevated position and brought him before everybody, the entire people of Jerusalem, and said, Here is your king. As a joke, right? As a charge. God keeps using pagans. God keeps using non-Christians to tell people his gospel. To tell people that this is important. And then says, hey Christians, I'd like you to do it too. <laughs> you, you guys could do this too. It doesn't just have to be Pilate that shares the gospel. Peter can too. Oh, who knew? But God himself came through that gate because Jesus came through that gate. So as Jesus' group came through and approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus went and sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And Matthew specifies he's talking about Bethphage. Go into Bethphage, and as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Why would they ask that? You're stealing a colt. Just walking up and getting into somebody's car and driving off with it. If somebody says, why are you doing that? Tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. That's enough of an—I don't even know what God did to prepare this. I have no idea what went before, but he's like, I'm on it. Just tell Him I need it, and that will be enough. Trust me, they'll hand you the keys. And they went and they found a colt inside, just inside in the street, tied at a doorway. And sure enough, as they untied it, some people went, what are you doing? Why are you untying the colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them. The people said, oh, okay, here, take the keys. Because he already knew what he was doing. God already prepared this. The donkey, the gate, the cross. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Hundreds of years before the cross, we get Psalm 22, which is all about the cross. A hundred years before that, we get Ezekiel talking about the east gate. Over and over, God's like, I know what I'm doing. And Matthew even straight up tells us that this this all took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, pointing back to Zechariah's prophecy of the coming Messiah. In Zechariah 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Long before Jesus was ever born, Not the prancing stallion of a guy that's coming in off the war battlefield saying, I've I've won. I'm still sweaty with battle and still covered in armor and things. This is a prince riding a gentle ride on his donkey into the town that's rightly his. Battle is absolutely won. That's not even skirmishes. No, it's, this is victory. This is my city. I don't worry about it. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields, and those who went ahead of and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, save us. And Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118 specifically. That talks about this Psalm where they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It talks about picking up branches and waving them in worship, and worshipping the God in a holy place, because God has finally made his light, his glory, shine on Israel. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, they shouted. Everything that they shouted indicated that they were worshiping God and that they were ascribing worth to Jesus. And they were saying, you are our king. We put our trust in you. You're going to save us. Everything that they said and everything that they did indicated that that's what was going on in their hearts. Is that what was going on in their hearts? Everything they said and everything they did would indicate it. Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, just like Ezekiel prophesied. And did the people follow him like they were supposed to in Psalm 118? I don't know. But Jesus looked around at everything, but it was already late, and so he we went out to Bethany with the twelve, stayed overnight so he could come back in the morning, and I'm sure the people are all like, Oh, I want to see what the king does tomorrow. What is he going to do tomorrow? He's here. Tomorrow's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. What's going to happen? So the next day as they were leaving Bethany to go back to Jerusalem, picture it on the map, Jesus was hungry and seeing at the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. He went to look for flowers in Illinois out along the roadway and it was January and what was he thinking? Because Jesus is not very bright, clearly, right? I planted, we planted a tree in the fall, and uh, I'd really like to see it bud to make sure it's not dead. It still looks like a twig sticking out of the ground. I would really like to see some buds. But it's still been so cold, it just, nothing's been budding yet. Should I have checked in January to see if it had budded yet? Obviously, Jesus isn't very bright. Should have known it wasn't a season for figs. And then when Jesus saw that it didn't have any figs, he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it, and he cursed the fig tree, because Jesus is very petulant, right? He's Not very bright, and he's very petulant. He's very upset. He gets angry. Well, he lives in an offense culture, and he just got offended, and so he posted on Facebook how that stinky tree that wasn't... Either that or there was something else going on. Either Jesus was dim and easily annoyed or he's making a point. From everything you know about Jesus, which of these do you think is more likely? He didn't make it here, though. Curse you, tree! Moving on. The disciples are like, it's not even the season for figs. What's his problem? I don't know. I don't know, maybe there's one that's like, oh, there's probably a point in there. It's about the bread, isn't it? It's because we didn't bring bread. I don't know. But on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Buying and selling what? The law said you needed to pay your tithe at the temple in Jewish coins. But everybody got paid in Roman coins, right? So to follow the law, you needed to change your money from Roman coins to to Jewish coins. So these guys are just doing a service in the temple by exchanging coins for you so that you could follow the law. And if they made a little money off of it, okay. And they were also selling doves. Why? I mean, because not everybody, we think of the ancient world and we go, they're all farmers. Not in town. No, most of them weren't farmers. Most of the people who lived in Jerusalem didn't have sheep and goats and things. They were goldsmiths and perfume makers and CPAs and dentists. You know, stuff that you have in cities. And specifically, we're told about doves, that doves are what poor people should bring if you can't afford to bring a sheep or goat. And so by saying you could buy your doves here, on your way into the temple. They're just doing a service. They're just helping people out so that they can follow the law. So why was Jesus so upset? Well, in part because they're doing it in the temple courts, right? He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves to to the poorest worshipers, to those who couldn't afford a lamb. You know, like when Jesus' parents were poor and couldn't afford a lamb, so they bought a dove to sacrifice when Jesus was dedicated. You remember that? He's like, you're fleecing these people. You're making money off of it and pretending as if you're doing something worshipful. And Jesus wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts, and he taught them because he wasn't just tantruming. This is a teaching moment. He taught them and said, isn't it written... Back in Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But these money changers and these dove sellers were selling up in the temple courts, the one place where the Gentiles got to come and worship. This is the one place they're allowed to worship. But instead, you turn it into a marketplace. You're fleecing people in a marketplace that should be a place of worship. How dare you do that? God allowed everyone to come in. And these guys are using it as a place to make money off of worship at the expense of worship. And Jesus is disgusted with the hypocrisy, the selfishness, masking raiding as, no, we're just helping people follow the law. You've invaded the house of God with your self-serving greed. You're a marauders. And in fact, Zechariah even talked about Zechariah, the same one that talked about the riding in on the cult of the donkey. Zechariah said that, the, that God is saying, I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. And the Jews of Christ's day would have said, yes, marauders like the Romans. And Jesus says, no, marauders like you. You marauded your own temple. You've prostituted yourselves. Are the Romans marauders? Fine. But you're marauders in the temple itself. It's not... Isn't it written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Quoting Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah seven eleven, God says, Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers? I have been watching, declares the Lord. How many times and how many prophets does God have to say, I've been watching. Did you think I wasn't paying attention? Did you think I was dim? I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dense. Of course I'm going to see this. You pray in my temple. You look holy. You jump through all the right hoops. Technically, technically, on paper, you're even helping people follow the law. But you're really only using that as a hideout to conceal your sins. It's supposed to be a hospital to heal them. Again and again, Jesus points to hypocrisy. He says, guys, there's what things look like, and there's what they actually are. Stop and think, which is it? Are you salt, or are you just salty-tasting gypsum? Mark 11:18. the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And as much as they feared Jesus, they also feared the crowd, and they didn't want to... They didn't want to mess with the crowd because the crowd was supporting Jesus. They were literally waving palm fronds the day before. They can't berate Jesus publicly after the people are calling him king. Everything's being led by fear. And when Jesus, when evening came, Jesus and disciples went out of the city, and in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Because See, that story's not quite done yet. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Hey, check it out, implied by the Greek. Rabbi, look. Hey, check it out. The fig tree you cursed is withered. Ha! Jesus said, have faith in God. You're surprised that my curse actually turned out to work? There's some faith for you. Seriously? That surprised you? i tell you the truth. If anyone says to, you, to this mountain, go throw yourself into looking at the mountains, right? Coming off of the Mount of Olives, coming toward Mount Zion. He's like, I'm pointing to a mountain when I say this. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and and doesn't doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. It surprises you that I cursed a fig tree and it withered? I'm telling you, call this mountain to be thrown into the sea and it'll happen. Where's your faith? Why don't you? You hear me, but you don't listen. Why does it still throw you? I'm in the boat with you, and you say, don't you care if we drown? Seriously? What are you worried about? I'm right here with you. I tell you, you go do, and you can do what I've done, and you're still scared of storms. You guys are afraid that Peter gets thrown into jail, and so you pray and pray and pray that he's released, and the servant girl goes, oh, Peter's at the door, and you go, Peter can't be at the door. We're praying that he's supernaturally released. Why is it you guys have such trouble believing me? Why is it that you guys have such trouble with this? Over and over. You hear it, but you don't listen. God says not to covet, and yet we covet and covet and covet and covet and feel tremendously unfulfilled. God says, pray. We put bumper stickers that say prayer changes things on our cards. And yet even some of those same people say, well, we've done everything we can. All we can do now is pray, as if it's somehow a last resort. We hear, but we don't, we don't really listen. We don't put it in our hearts. God says sexual depravity is toxic. and It's toxic to relationships. It's toxic to cultures. And yet we desire more and more of it and invent new ways to increasingly justify it and wink it away and say it's not really that bad. In fact, it's perfectly fine. We, we hear it, but we don't listen because we don't want to. God says, don't call each other a fool. It's tantamount to murder. And yet, every second, third Facebook post is, these people are fools. Because they are. I mean, they just are. I mean, I heard what Jesus said, but I don't need to listen because these people really are fools. We hear it, but we don't listen. We hear God's word and we don't listen. Scratch the surface. Are we any different than the world? Let's go back to the fig tree for a minute. What was the point of that? Why did Jesus curse a fig tree in the first place? It wasn't even the season for figs. But he went to the fig tree and goes, you know, you're full of leaves. You look full. You look like a fig tree. You look like you should have leaves and you look like you should have figs, but in reality you have no fruit. You have all the outward appearance of fruitfulness, and no fruit. And so, I curse you for it. In the context, do you, do you hear what he's doing? Over and over and over again. You look like you're doing worship while you're actually undermining worship. You look fruitful while you're barren. You look like a rich young ruler who's righteous and yet you can't do what I'm asking you to do. You can wave palm branches all day but never really be ambassadors of a kingdom. You're never really worshiping. You can look like followers of Christ but you're not really willing to pick up the noose and put it around your neck. Not really, because you'd either rather hold on to this life or because you're afraid and you don't want to offend somebody or because you don't want to be offended or because you don't want anybody telling you that you need to put a noose around your own neck or because, I don't care, maybe maybe if you did pretty it up, maybe if you prettied it up, you made it out of gold and put it around your neck, then you'd do it, right? Make a little gold noose pin. Then it would be okay, as long as it doesn't really look like you're actually saying noose. It's more symbolic. If you're wearing a gold thingy that says a cross on it right now, I'm not saying I'm offended at you. I'm just saying, let that remind you what the cross actually is. Don't let that become the cross for you. The cross is by definition an offense. When we look at things, we tend to see what we are already emotionally prepared to see, and he says, "Guys, I want you to look and see that it doesn't actually have figs. You can look and you can see all day long, but at the end of the day, when your body's in the ground, what does any of that?" matter. You can sit in a church, but never reach beyond it. You can reach beyond the church, but never give your heart to Christ. You can do pieces of this, but never really have that be an overflow of God working in your heart. And at the end of the day, when your body's in the ground, what does any of that matter? As you face life's trials today, don't only see what you're mentally prepared to see. Ask the hard questions. Are you saved or not? Has your Have your sins been paid for Or not? Are you secure that you know what's going to be the situation and where you'll be after you die or not? Do you know? Would you rather feel like you've got it all right now or do you want to know that you'll have it for eternity? If you don't have those answers, if you're not secure in your answers, where exactly should you turn for hope? And when exactly should you do it? Look in God's word, talk to God, and do it today. You don't want this to go on indefinitely. Jesus, when he was faced with the trial of looking at palm branches, and I genuinely believe it was a very subtle trial. Because when he looked at the palm branches, he knew full well, I am I am having palm branches waved at me like in Psalm 118. I'm riding on the colt of a donkey like in Zechariah 9. I'm riding through the east gate Like in Ezekiel 43, I'm fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. I am the Messiah. I am the King. And people are waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, save us, King. You are the King. You're the King. You're the King coming in the the name of David. Save us. We know you're here to save us. And he didn't see palm branches. He saw fig trees with no figs. could have been seduced into seeing palm branches that were worshiping, but they weren't. They were worshiping the Messiah they wanted to see. And when he wasn't what they wanted, they dumped him like a hot rock and said, crucify him, crucify him. I totally believe in God until my brother dies, and then all bets are off. I totally believe in God until my son dies, and then how could any God do that? I totally believe in God until I lose my job and then all bets are off. I totally believe in God until I'm paralyzed and all bets are off. I totally believe in God until he doesn't meet my expectations. And I drop him like a hot rock. And I didn't totally believe in God. And it's so important that we understand how Christ faced that trial on Palm Sunday so that when we get to Friday and those same voices that were saying, save us, are now saying, crucify Him." He wasn't broken by it because he would already been heartbroken by it. Because in the middle of being told, palm branches, he said, let me tell you about a fig tree. And the very next chapter, Mark chapter 12, Jesus preaches, haven't you read this scripture again? Psalm 118, which keeps coming up because Jesus knows his Bible. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or a cornerstone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Quoting from that same psalm where they had been saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're waving their branches. They heard the psalm, but they weren't listening. He's like, There are going to be people who reject this, but it needs to be the cornerstone. So I'm going to encourage you, me, all of us today, all of us, even if you go, No, I've been a Christian for years. Fine, 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 fine. Stop for one second. Where are you at with the Lord? Is he your cornerstone? Is he your capstone? Is he your keystone? Is he the crucial part of your life? Or not? Make a decision. It is a light switch, not a dimmer switch. Make a decision. Put a noose around your neck. Remind yourself it's not your life. The life you live, you live in Christ who gave his life for you to have life. And it's going to be offense to people. Don't be offensive with it. It's offensive enough. But make a decision today to be an ambassador for a kingdom that isn't just show, that isn't just patina, that isn't just the outside gloss, that isn't just a whitewashed tomb, but it's a kingdom that is changed from the inside out and burbles forth. Of all the weeks of the year, what a wonderful week to tell people, I know my Redeemer lives. And on the earth again will stand. This is a wonderful week to say, my God lived with me and lives in me. It's a wonderful week to tell people that Jesus died on the cross. And I don't memorialize that as a nice guy who is now gone. I remember that as my Savior who died to make me family and to wash me clean and then he came alive again on Sunday and lives forevermore, and I will live with him. Make a decision to live that every day in how you interact with people. Make your life an act of worship. Make a decision. Don't just wave palm branches. Mean it. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you want us waving palm branches. It's what Psalm 118 is telling us. You want us to do that, but you want us to mean it. So I pray, Lord, help us to genuinely honor you, not just with what we do, not just with where we do it, not just even always how we do it, but with why we do it, which should then tell us when and where and how. Help us, Lord, to honor you in everything that we do because we are honoring you in everything we do. Help us to glorify you. And give you praise. Because blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Help us shout that from the mountaintops. In Jesus name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us in singing our closing song?